Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. So let's get started. It is my distinct pleasure to host virtually um, our speakers for today. Uh, in the interest of brevity, I will uh, give you the short form introduction to them. They are Elena Rybakova, who is Deputy Chief Economist at the Institute of International Finance. Thank you for being here. And also Rachel Ziemba, who is an adjunct senior fellow in the economics program at the Center for New American Security. I also, of course, mentioned uh, Peter Harrell, adjunct senior fellow at CNAS, who is also co-moderating this with me, and who, like myself, will uh, add to and help move along the conversation once we come to uh, incorporate all all of our participants. Alina, let me come to you first. Uh, And uh, what we'll do to begin with is a little bit of level setting uh, uh, by those of us here as speakers on the economic and financial effects of COVID-19. So to get us started, can you offer um, uh, a sketch of the landscape? What are we looking at so far? Uh, how are we seeing this show up in the data uh, so far? And can you offer a brief note on how you'd assess the response by central bankers and by policymakers considering stimulus measures? Thank you so much, and thank you for everybody to jo- for joining. Um, it is a dramatic healthcare uh, pandemic. And that's, first of all, that's what's important. Of course, what does it mean for us, for economists and the financial market watchers? You know, our job is in a way is much easier than those of healthcare workers. But at the same time, we need to make sure that it doesn't have massive secondary effects. The first effects are clear. If you're having shutdowns, you will have a mathematical effect on growth. It's not something per se we should be scared of. Uh, These are important measures, measures needed to save lives. And if mathematically, especially I find quarter-on-quarter numbers annualized, very unproductive, they look scary, and they don't really mean much. We need to close down and have social distancing. But what matters, if we're having dislocations in financial markets, um, and we have particularly leveraged companies going bankrupt, or companies in the exposed sectors going bankrupt, or countries even, Of course, that will have very deep secondary effects globally. In terms of the response so far, we had very brave responses by the central bankers. And we also had a lot of um, individual country suggestions for fiscal measures. Unfortunately, we have seen much less in terms of coordinated response. And that matters, especially, for example, for emerging markets, where the outflows so far are already much deeper than we have seen in the global financial crisis or any other previous crisis. So what is lacking at the moment is a coordinated response. Thank you very much for that. Rachel, let me turn to you right now and let's get a little bit further into the impact for growth. How are you seeing the impact, say, for second quarter growth uh, and looking forward? What's a way that we can understand and evaluate that with any kind of empirical rigor? Obviously, that's an incredibly difficult task at this time. Uh, And can you also go a little bit deeper into the issue of how we may be seeing different um, economic performance indicators for emerging markets versus more um, advanced or mature economies? 
Thanks, Liz, and th thanks to all of you for joining us. Um, I'd just like to sort of pick up on the point Alina men mentioned, which is this shutting, the quarantines, the shutdowns, the stay in place, of course, mechanically are leading to what will show up as recessions across many major economies. In fact, they have been arguably rolling um, downturns, contractions, beginning in China, spreading to Europe and the United States, uh, already either in the first quarter or beginning moving into the second quarter, and that uh, will both that those will be reinforcing. We've seen in the last few days India, for example, another major emerging market go on lockdown. So these are sharp and deep uh, measures. And that's, I think, one of the contributing factors to this major capital outflow pressure Alina was talking about. So compared to the global financial crisis, these are likely sharper. Um, we don't know yet whether they will be shorter. That will depend on the health crisis and it will also depend on the policy response. Countries, for example, that are able to keep workers assigned to their jobs and to provide a financial lifeline may be more able to emerge out of it. If we look across the world, whether emerging or, or developed, it's the service sectors that have been most affected, uh, particularly in-person services, travel and tourism, uh, and, uh, and anything other than basic goods, delivery, food and groceries. Manufacturing has been hit, including in China, and we can talk about both supply chain issues and also the impact of trade restrictions uh, that have been manifesting in a major way. Um, the trade war has taken on very new guise. Another important impact for emerging markets has been the oil war. Um, and this, this has been a very big demand shock for uh, global uh, oil and gas. But in this context, Russia and Saudi Arabia have opted to increase supply and others are following. And so this means this lack of balance in the oil market hits revenues, it adds to the financial market pressure, and means that as we come closer to running out of storage, uh, is going to put particular pressure on those on those countries, and unlike in a typical oil uh, supply shock, the importers might not benefit a lot uh, if they're on lockdown. Uh, who's driving, or who's driving as much? And as as Elena already highlighted, many emerging markets have less policy space than their developed market counterparts either because they've already used up that fiscal space or because they're facing uh, currency and other, and other outflows. Um, in that regard, I think it's gonna be very important for us to watch the revival and restart of particularly the Chinese economy. Um, and China provides a cautionary tale of the sort of depth of decline we might see in activity and maybe some of the challenges in starting. Um, before I conclude, I think one other important thing to watch across both developed and emerging markets is probably a greater role of the government in driving growth um, and the like. Some of that is necessary. We're in an unprecedented crisis and government coordination within and between countries is critical. However, I think it's also worth watching the dynamics of state-owned enterprises and the way in which either SOEs can be important to keep things running, as we've seen in China, and as I think we will see in countries like Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, 
but also how it might reinforce the role that these entities play, and that might lead to some important security questions down the line. Actually, that's a really important point to pivot to the uh, geopolitical effects and something that um, <clears throat> us at CNAS and our colleagues have been thinking about what the implications of greater state involvement for uh, economic crisis response will mean uh, for governance um, and uh, mode of governance. Let me turn now, give another question to all of you, um, <clears throat> specific to uh, at the country level. Can you uh, look ahead um, at this picture you've now painted of economic difficulty, cascading economic difficulty, uneven economic difficulty, and in some cases, for some countries, perhaps profound economic difficulty. What, what states do you see as most vulnerable to um, political instability as a result of the economic, really challenging economic conditions? So Alina and Rachel, why don't I come to you first, and then Peter, you take that question too, and then I'll hand over to you uh, uh, as moderator and for further uh, questions and commentary. Thank you. This is an extremely important point, and we've seen already a pickup in populism before this crisis. And we in the, in the economics profession tend to have an out old-fashioned view saying that, look, if you have a deep crisis, populism is more likely to increase. I think the recent research really pointed out that we need to look more granularly into this. There are sectors of the economy, sort of the misunderstood middle class, and when we talk about middle class, we usually don't mean actually middle. We mean usually more upper middle class, but the real middle class already has been suffering from the downturn in manufacturing in a lot of places, and now it's going to get a second hit because a lot of the people in the true middle are employed in the sectors either part-time or they're not having the benefits, the unemployment benefits, health benefits. And I think we will see that across emerging markets, including, for example, in Latin America. And I also want to add something a bit more controversial. Uh, Russia is another example. Uh, a lot of the countries, and I'm sure Rachel will talk more about China, but countries like Russia or China might seem very stable politically on the outside, but the systems are rather fragile on the inside. And I think the fact that we've had this zeroing out of um, uh, President Putin's uh, terms, the fact that he can run again, and that was, have, that was taken, um, I think it took them 16 hours to propose and almost pass. <laughs> I think that is important. important. It shows fear. It shows the fact that they needed to speed up with a solution and, and assure continuity to the elites, to the internally to the population, and also outside. Rachel, to you. Sorry, I <laughs> challenge unmuting, um, as with all of these. So uh, I think one place I'm really trying to understand political vulnerability is among some of the poor um, oil exporters. Now, it's not to say that just because there's a shock that necessarily breeds political instability, but if we look at countries like Algeria, Iraq, even Nigeria, um, with these were many of these were countries that were facing political challenges before. Um, Algeria is one that stands out, and it's one that was already bleeding money uh, when oil prices were at seventy dollars a barrel. Um, and so those would be ones I would I would sort of watch for, and would say that these are countries that might well need regional and and other support. Um, I also have my eye on India. 
Um, and that's partly because of the way in which the cracked, the cracked, the pre-existing crackdowns on nationalist lines were already destabilizing uh, parts of, of India. And unfortunately, the speed at which the lockdown was put in place in India with very little notice and very little attention to how people would get basic food and basic services, I think could deepen those fault lines. I'm not saying the Modi government is going to fall, but I do think that some of the pressures that are there could be amplified in this very important, uh, in this very important ally. Peter, to you. Oh, thank you, uh, Liz, and, and, and thanks for inviting me uh, to join uh, the panel and to moderate uh, after this. I, I think it's probably going to be a couple of months before we really understand what governments uh, are potentially vulnerable uh, to political uh, unrest here, unless some government so totally botches the response that they're food shortages uh, or that kind of thing. I mean, I think the, the reality is um, over the next couple of months in most countries where the pandemic is spreading uh, at scale, which I think is likely to be most countries around the world, um, you know, most people are frankly going to be staying home. Uh, they're going to be looking after sick loved ones and they're going to be avoiding crowded uh, public places. So, um, you know, I think actually it, it's, it's probably less likely that we'll see, for example, widespread political protests uh, against government uh, actions or, or failures to act uh, over the next couple of months because people generally want to avoid um, getting uh, getting sick uh, from the pandemic. So I think the question is really going to be, you know, as the kind of we get into the lingering effects of this, you know, as countries come to terms with how many people uh, in their country uh, passed away, whether there was an effective uh, economic response, economic policy response, that means this is only a you know, moderate to moderately severe recession uh, as comp uh, compared to a, you know, Great Depression uh, type uh, recession. Uh, I think it's really only at that point that we'll really begin to understand, you know, which governments are actually, um, are actually uh, facing serious vulnerabilities uh, as, a, uh, as a result of, of their response. I'd also just note, I mean, you know, preliminary polling, and we've begun to see some of this, suggests that in the short run, most leaders are getting popular bumps uh, as a result uh, of the, uh, the response. That seems to be true in both democratic and in uh, less democratic uh, countries. But, you know, so far, um, uh, in, again, in the very short run, it seems there is a little bit of a kind of rally around the flag, appreciate that governments seem to be doing something uh, to, address, uh, to address the crisis. Uh, I'm, I'll be very surprised if those bumps last over time, but again, uh, reinforcing my view that the, the, the political implications are probably more of a midterm rather than a short-term uh, development. Great, thanks for that. And Peter, over to you for, uh, for the next step. Great, well, thank you um, very, very much. Uh, and Alina and Rachel, thank you so much for some very uh, thoughtful and insightful um, comments. I thought I would use uh, the, uh, the the prerogative of the moderator to ask just one or two uh, questions of each of you uh, to kick things uh, to kick off uh, the discussion. Um, and uh, Alina, I actually want to pick up with you first. Uh, coming back to one of your 
uh, comments that you made in your remarks that, that um, you know, in the short term, people shouldn't be too scared of the terrible numbers because they don't matter all that much. I mean, you know, there is a shutdown uh, happening. That means the numbers are going to be bad. And the question is really, uh, you know, how does the uh, how do things play out after economies uh, get turned uh, turned back on? Uh, you also said that at an individual country level, you thought a number of countries were actually taking, you know, fairly aggressive uh, and impactful um, policy uh, responses. But you you commented uh, that you see a lack of coordination, uh, particularly maybe between developed and emerging uh, markets. Um, you know, obviously, over the last week, week and a half, we have seen. Uh, here in the U.S., the U.S. Federal Reserve expand uh, swap lines with a number of uh, countries around the world to help uh, help address uh, financial uh, flows and, and vulnerabilities. Um, you know, we've seen commentary out of the uh, the international financial institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, talking about things uh, that they can do uh, as this gets uh, worse. And we've seen the European Union. Uh, really take some pretty dramatic uh, within the EU steps, much like the U.S. has uh, domestically. What do you see as policymakers not doing? What are the, what are the sort of with more specificity? What are the the steps you think that are being uh, forgotten uh, in these early days of the policy response that we need policymakers to turn to, you know, quickly uh, in order to get out ahead of problems. Thank you so much. I think it's important to operationalize these solutions, basically make them functional. There's a lot of talk and a lot of proposals, but a lot the money hasn't reached the, the those in need yet. And I think it's very important, as you say, to break it up into two big issues. One is the access to the lender of last resort and foreign exchange. Just to remind you, emerging markets continue to borrow a lot in foreign currency or they rely on the global financial markets. Even though some of them have moved away from borrowing in effects, they, they borrow in local markets and local currency, but they actually sell those bonds to global financial system, to global asset managers and sometimes banks. So they, they themselves do not print dollars, and therefore when there is a shock, even though they might have flexible exchange rate regime, they still have to provide lend of last resort facility in foreign exchange. And the Fed's swap lines are very helpful, and we can already see that in the price action of these markets, but it's very limited, and it's understandable. It's not responsibility of the Fed to bail out every emerging market, and they are going to do swap lines with those that are most credible, that do not have the big credit risk, and that's what they have done. That is already very encouraging and helpful. But the IMF um, uh, measures are not coming out fast enough, and I think that's the concern. IMF programs, that the emergency programs are just too small to matter, they matter maybe for some of the smaller countries that Rachel uh, mentioned, but uh, they do not matter for the big countries and they're not coming fast enough. You know, they still have conditionality on the programs and uh, they need to speed it up. I think that's the big issue. On the European front, we actually have within Europe the same similar issues in a way where some of the periphery countries or some of the non-core countries are struggling to borrow already. And... Um, the, there are a few takers either for the Spanish bonds or the Italian bonds, and there are concerns about debt sustainability in these countries. And over the last few days, we've seen a lot of debate among the policymakers and uh, even the letters, you know, letters from this group of policymakers, this group of uh, sort of uh, leaders, they've all fragmented and they haven't come up with a pan-European decision how to help out the countries across Europe. 
Thank you, uh, Alina, uh, for that. Very much appreciate it. Um, Rachel, I want to come to you now uh, and ask you to elaborate on uh, one of the issues you put on the table towards the end of your, uh, your remarks, the, 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 the issues of impacts on supply chains. Uh, and it's, it's interesting to see this because I think, you know, views of impacts on supply chains are evolving quite quickly as the crisis spreads globally. I mean, back in January, you know, kind of through the end of February, I think many of us who were looking at this issue when we were still of the view that this was a pandemic that would largely be confined to China or potentially China and a couple of um, adjacent countries in East Asia were thinking about U.S. vulnerabilities or European vulnerabilities to China uh, supplies, you know, on medicines and uh, API, pharmaceutical ingredients uh, for medicines and, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, obviously, we're now in a little bit of a situation where, you know, China may be getting back to work. Uh, the U.S. is shutting down. The Europe is in the middle of a shutdown. Uh, we're seeing reports about the European shutdown already impacting, you know, auto parts uh, supplies uh, here in the U.S. and elsewhere. Uh, certainly, although to date, you know, trade seems to be continuing across the North American borders, the U.S.-Canada and U.S.-Mexico uh, borders, even though most people other than people carrying goods are not, uh, if there's a further clampdown, that would disrupt uh, supply chains. I mean, looking at the world today, where it seems like we have a global pandemic uh, and not just a regional pandemic, uh, what do you think, how do you think policymakers should be thinking about supply chain risks, both in the near term and then after we get through the current crisis uh, over the longer term? Great, great question, Peter. And I think you're right to split it into those two different time frames because governments and individuals are in crisis in crisis mode and trying to source the things that are most important and also try to maintain not only medical equipment and medicines but also food supply chains which i would say is something that when we look back on it uh, China did quite well domestically and I think there are other countries that may struggle to do that um, not only because uh, in that context so I think if we look back at the beginning yes there was a supply concern about medicines but there was also a supply concern about what was it going to mean for iPhone supplies and what was it going to mean for everything you know it's hard to think back about the kinds of how how impactful or not things like the Apple earnings warning and many earnings warnings were um, so I think that's where in the short term demand the big demand shock has probably shifted also what types of things people are demanding. Um, so in the short term, I think we will see more and more countries that can looking to deepen their supply chains on the things that matter, uh, particularly medical equipment. It's hard to, it's very hard to make ventilators in very short periods of time without those needed inputs. Though I'm heartened uh, that, that there seem to be some solutions. Over the long term, what I worry about a bit is getting that right calibration of nationalizing and deepening supply chains at home, particularly in the United States, but also within Europe, within China, in ways that might exacerbate some of the trade conflicts that were already going on. We have seen, and, and Simon Evanet has done great work tracking all the countries that have imposed export controls of medical equipment in the last couple of weeks. I think it's up at 54 countries 
that can be a rational response locally, uh, but it adds to the costs of fighting this crisis and it increases the risk that all countries and jurisdictions within countries compete against each other. So I think that's an area on the health side that greater coordination and I would be interested, I would watch the, some of the uh, trade, uh, some of the uh, uh, projection, uh, some of the initiatives around reducing trade protectionism that a couple of countries have started to talk around. You know, I'm not too encouraged that that will happen at the G20 level. Finally, I think one of the things that will be quite important going forward is whether there is U.S.-China cooperation or competition on a variety of issues. Um, many of our CNAS colleagues and many people have written a lot about how China has really tried to reframe, you know, has reframed the narrative and is involved in, uh, in humanitarian health aid. We don't know all the costs. Um, we are seeing many countries disrupt service supply chains by keeping uh, workers and shutting down universities and the like. I think there are real questions and potentially real divisions that are emerging that might make it harder to face future um, crises. I hope I'm wrong about that, but it's a, it's a concern I see. Uh, thank you uh, very, very much, uh, Rachel. So I think we are now going uh, to begin to turn to audience questions. I see a number of audience questions have already, uh, have already come in. Um, Ashley, would you mind coming on just to remind people how to pose questions uh, using uh, the Q&A uh, function and how we'll be uh, asking them? And then I have a couple of specific uh, guests I'd like to turn to um, to ask uh, ask their questions. Yeah. So um, when we are taking, we're so we're now starting to take questions. We're only going to take questions from people who identify themselves. So when you enter a question, please be, please be sure to say your name, your title, and affiliation. Um, if you're on the phone, you can raise your hand virtually, and we will identify you by the last four digits of your phone number by pressing star nine. In Zoom. What you can do is you can go to the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen and you can enter a question there. We'll respond to you privately, letting you know that we've entered your question into the queue. If you have other questions or you can't figure out Zoom or your phone, please feel free to email us uh, questions at afeng at cnas.org. Thank you very much, uh, Ashley. Um, for our first uh, question, I'd actually like uh, to turn uh, to one uh, of our own uh, here at CNAS uh, from uh, our CEO, Richard Fontaine, who we are fortunate uh, to have with us uh, virtually today. Uh, Richard, for you, can we actually unmute you so that uh, you can ask your question um, directly? Sure, can you hear me? Yeah, absolutely, Richard. Great. Um, well, my question is about uh, the sanctions that are in place with on countries like Venezuela and Iran. I guess Iran first and foremost. There seems to be a division uh, in interpretation about whether a relaxation of those sanctions is merited given the health crisis in both of those countries and other places as well. Uh, 
the one side says, well, there's no restrictions on the import uh, of medical supplies and equipment and so forth. The other side says, well, it's really the financing that's been interrupted by the sanctions. It makes it very difficult for these countries to obtain the kinds of uh, supplies necessary given the health crisis and uh, whatever our, our differences with uh, their government's policies, we don't want to see coronavirus break out uh, and, and among the population uh, to even an even greater degree. So ask the panelists uh, what your assessment is of the impact of the sanctions, particularly with Iran and Venezuela when it comes to coronavirus effects. Thank you very much for that, uh, Richard, and certainly something that has been in the news. I mean, we've seen uh, all of these reports of, you know, the Iranians uh, asking for sanctions relief and, and various efforts, including uh, by some uh, mostly Democrats here in the U.S. to provide some sanctions relief. I actually thought, Rachel, I'd love your views uh, on this. But before that, Liz, you are uh, you worked at Treasury uh, on sanctions, um, obviously one of uh, one of Washington's leading experts on sanctions. I thought I might ask you, Liz, to come in for just a minute on this and then ask uh, ask uh, uh, ask Rachel. Uh, thanks, Peter. Um, and thanks for the question, Richard. Um, Actually, I appreciate how you asked the question, Richard. It captures really well the debate uh, as it is, and um, uh, also the fact that the answers or analysis that people have will um, most certainly be subjective in almost all instances. But um, I, I want to uh, offer a point that I've made before and would in any opportunity to do so, that in fact, it doesn't need to be as binary as the debate is becoming, uh, particularly among US policy leaders, which is to say, uh, there's a, a camp around, um, if you will, uh, put apply greatest amount of pressure to these uh, uh, threatening um, and um, uh, authoritarian regimes uh, versus, and so uh, apply greater pressure and perhaps uh, provoke the regime change that uh, some hawks have sought to uh, foment through this economic pressure strategy versus um, a kind of uh, what appears to be emerging as a kind of compassion, if you will, movement, which is to say now is not the time to be applying greater economic pressure, particularly where there is a broader uh, public uh, international interest in making sure that these countries, to the extent that they become the an epicenter of the pandemic, as uh, Iran surely has, like let's support them as they are working through their uh, response. So uh, I like the way you set it up, but I will just say from a policy perspective, it doesn't have to be apply more pressure to uh, to cratering economies and um, political situations versus uh, apply compassion, there are a, an array of creative measures that the U.S. government can take to try and create opportunities for more uh, normalized trade in medicine and medical devices to uh, facilitate that as a banking matter, even without removing some of the sanctions that are in place. However, the U.S. government has been piling on more sanctions yesterday, all of last week, et cetera. So uh, for Iran, as well as more measures for Venezuela yesterday. And so we can see, I mean, these actions really speak for themselves that the U.S. government's perspective is uh, much more in the apply pressure camp. But there will be 
I believe, a greater and greater debate that will have a very partisan character in the United States around, if you will, apply pressure in order to tip them over the edge for regime change versus a kind of compassion, if you will, movement. It'll be particularly difficult for Democrats. So maybe I'll just leave it there for now, um, but to say um, it does not need to be that binary and ignores the opportunities for uh, creating general licenses or other opportunities to respond to the pandemic and apply particular technical assistance and relief. But to the point Alina was making earlier, we've seen very little limited international coordination. It's um, struggled where it has existed, even amongst like-minded countries and traditional allies with established multilateral bodies. So to contemplate what that could look like between the United States and Iran seems like a much, much uh, uh, more difficult uh, um, uh, you know, opportunity or, or opportunity for success. Uh, actually, that was a, a terrific and thoughtful uh, response, Liz. Maybe I will leave it there, Rachel. We'll come back to you on another question just to uh, keep things uh, moving along. Um, I believe we have a question uh, from Michael Herson uh, to bring in, uh, I hope, some of the uh, Asia dynamics uh, and U.S.-China uh, dynamics here. Uh, Michael, I think we have you on the phone, and I'm going to uh, turn to you to ask your question uh, live uh, as well. Sure. Thanks, Peter. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you just fine. Thank you. Great. Well, first of all, thank you for the discussion. I, I wanted to pick up on a point that Rachel made uh, about China's uh, early recovery from coronavirus. It's been very interesting for me to see how China has sought to leverage that to um, provide more assistance to a number of countries from Europe to Africa uh, and really go from, I think, an initial effort to just repair China's image to what seems to be a much more ambitious effort now to really. Um, claim some, uh, some mantle of global leadership as the Trump administration falls short in terms of how it's coordinating the global response to the pandemic. At the same time, I think there are real limits to China's uh, willingness and ability to do so in the, in the way that the, the U.S. used to in the past. But from an economic perspective, the question for both Elena and Rachel would be, China appears thus far to be I don't want to say a safe haven, but to be uh, far less badly hit than a lot of emerging markets. And the question this raises to me is, will China be able to provide financial assistance to emerging markets in particular um, as the economic toll uh, and debt issues mount for many of these developing countries? So I'd be curious to get your, your thoughts on that. Will China have the willingness and also the capacity to not just absorb the hit from this pandemic, but to actually provide financial assistance to other countries. Um, terrific. Thank you very much, Michael. And thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, Alina, maybe I'll come to you uh, first on this. Uh, and then Rachel ask you to um, uh, opine on this question uh, as well. But, uh, but, but first to you, Alina. Thank you. I think China definitely has much more limited capacity to be the land of last resort compared to the previous episodes. But I think there is definitely willingness. And for the smaller emerging markets and frontier markets, it will make the difference. Um, we have seen China's outwards investment into this crisis much lower. The commitments from the One Belt, One Road 
uh, the, late, the latest ones were much smaller than the previous ones and they've become much more selective, especially some of the countries in Africa or also across the world actually beginning to have issues and China was sort of in a way forced into taking over assets they might have not wanted before. But I think with this crisis, especially the lack of the quick response the, from multilateral organizations, I think that gives room for China to step in. And I think on a small scale where it will matter for this uh, smaller frontier markets, I think we will see China participation uh, definitely happening. In terms of the global shock, I think with Chinese outflows so far, capital outflows, haven't been as dramatic as in the previous episodes and also compared to other emerging markets. And that's something to watch. They seem to be doing somewhat better than, uh, than many other emerging markets. Yeah, if, if, if I might add, um, one important debate that's ongoing right now is about not only financial support, but also debt relief. Uh, and maybe I should say particularly interest payment relief. Um, it's important. There's a debate out there that amplifies. Um, and that's been a call not only from, multi from multilaterals to encourage bilateral creditors, of which China is one of the largest and, and really the largest um, for many emerging and frontier markets. Uh, debt service relief would only uh, provide a little bit of space for countries that are facing, you know, sort of facing fiscal and, and other policy constraints. I tend to think of it as being helpful but insufficient. China so far has tended to be uh, a bit haphazard in any kind of debt write downs and relief in this sort of context. Um, but that would be somewhere sort of important to watch, particularly since China is a major bilateral creditor that's not a formal member of the Paris Club of, uh, of, of those who are hold, holding debt, uh, though it is an observer. Um, I think it will be interesting to see whether China's focus remains primarily bilateral or it looks to use development institutions that it has been uh, involved in setting up, whether it's the AIB or other sort of emergency reliefs. It's been notable that there haven't been Chinese swap lines in this crisis. Um, so Chinese swap lines, perhaps unlike uh, Fed swap lines, because they're providing Chinese currency liquidity, um, might be a little bit less useful um, for, depends on the country. They typically in the past facilitated imports of Chinese goods. So there are countries for which that would be more helpful. And of course, historically, the idea was that would help Chinese exporters. That, as I say, in this broader liquidity and financial pressure, um, I, I might watch for, for that. Uh, the other, I guess, important um, uh, point is, is whether China looks to its own institutions or uh, uses its role at the IMF and others uh, in, in this way. One thing that maybe is only starting to get attention is actually that the Chinese currency remained relatively stable, particularly in February and March. And new data coming out has suggested that it didn't come under a lot of financial pressure. They didn't have to spend a lot of reserves to stop that decline. That's important because if the Chinese currency had come under more pressure, we might have seen even more uh, pressure on other currencies, particularly in Asia. So I think that's an important thing to watch. 
Um, and, and I do think for some debt investors, uh, there has been this view of China as a, as a safe haven. Uh, the final thing to watch Absolutely. is that- While we're on the China topic, could I bring you in very briefly on a related question that a couple of people have asked, uh, including uh, So Yuhara uh, at Marubeni, uh, to talk some about China uh, and the impacts of, of all of this on the great U.S.-China decoupling uh, debate. And how do you think, uh, just briefly, this is going to play out over the next couple of months on the U.S.-China decoupling debate? Uh, did, did you want me to answer that, Peter? Or? Yeah, just briefly, please. Great. Pivot Great. <laughs> to that. So I think my my worry is in, in the remarks is that it might amplify uh, elements of, of decoupling. Uh, I think many of us are probably trying to read between the lines of the call that Presidents Trump and she had uh, last night, um, where it did seem to be an effort to try to smooth things out, particularly on the health side, and look for some high benefit, low risk sort of areas. The, it's seeming, it's the, the moves that have happened on, the, on export controls, particularly around Huawei, or maybe a cautionary question there. And then definitely the flow of people and individuals that was already being disrupted on visa lines and scientific and other cooperation, I think are likely to face, you know, to, to face a, a hit. Um, there's an opportunity for China and the U.S. to cooperate and, and in that way. I just, uh, I'm a bit skeptical whether it will materialize in part because of this, uh, some of the element of influence that, that Michael was talking about. Thank you. Um, uh, I, now I'd like to turn to a different uh, question uh, a different question about a different part of the world, uh, turning to the Middle East. Um, I'd like to bring in uh, Elon Goldenberg, our colleague uh, here at CNAS who runs uh, the Middle Eastern program. Uh, Elon, we're going to unmute you now, um, and so please, uh, please go ahead. Sure, you hear me all right? Yes, we can hear you. Great. Well, thanks for having me for a really interesting conversation. Um, I wanted to just raise and, and ask you a little bit about the potential implications of, for the Middle East. Um, we have a region of the world with huge numbers of refugees and people living uh, internally displaced in places like Yemen and Syria, um, where I think you could see really catastrophic impacts of this, but also possibly some of the ends of fighting. It could either create more violence or less. I don't think we know. Um, you also have, I worry, a, a lot of repressive countries poorly governed countries in the region, I'd say, maybe the most poorly governed region in the world in terms of the combination of, you know, repression plus not necessarily very effective services for the public or responsiveness or trust in the government, which to me seems like the worst kind of recipe for, for governments that can actually manage and handle these crises. Um, and then on top of that, I, maybe this is the big question for folks is, you know, you've also had a number of the Gulf states who not only... Now, I worry less about their stability, despite low oil prices. I think they can hang on for quite a while. But they also sometimes ask the, you know, they are the ones who kind of act as lenders of last resort for some of the other countries in the region, um, and as sort of backstops for places like Egypt and Jordan. Um, and so I'm wondering if the panelists are control concerned at all about that as well. Thank you very much, Elon. Um, Alina, let me actually turn to you uh, first on maybe the second part of uh, Elon's comment about you know impacts on uh, Gulf countries' ability uh, to 
uh, lend as they deal with um, a, a likely prolonged world of low uh, oil prices, some of which in, is in some ways self-inflicted, uh, given the uh, Saudi-Russia uh, oil price war. But, I, um, but let me begin by turning, uh, turning to you, Alina. Thank you. Um, it's important that a lot of these countries have relatively high break-even uh, oil prices, you know, for their fiscal balances, for their external balances. And they also have one hand sort of tied behind their backs because a lot of them have fixed exchange rate regimes. So they cannot let that help adjust. Um, even Egypt, which formerly has a sort of a, a semi-flexible exchange rate regime, in fact, you see the screens, um, it has barely moved. So they're not letting it help um, uh, adjustment domestically. So just to name a few countries, of course, Amman, Bahrain, um, uh, we are concerned about, and uh, Rachel also spoke about uh, Algeria, Nigeria, as well, as well as possibly further down uh, South Angola. Um, we do have a number of countries that will be, will have, a, will be, it will be a challenge. And just quickly on oil and the sort of the Saudi-Russia relationship, it's important that, it, like our seminar, it is a geopolitical project as much as it is an economics project, and we need to keep that in mind for Russia as well as for Saudi and MENA producers. Thank you. Let me turn to you, Rachel. Agree. Uh, I would just so I think Elon, you're so spot on. There's uh, I have a real concern about what the regional what the regional role will be, and I think we might well see continued continued support of the sort of political and security projects that are most important to Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and the like. But we've already seen dynamics going into it of concern from the Lebanese about how little support there's been from the Gulf even before this episode, let alone, so very selective. And these are issues beyond the Middle East, in the Horn of Africa, for example, where uh, Gulf countries have become the major dominant players. What what I see right now in the Gulf is that they're facing several shocks at the same time as many countries are. They're facing the oil shock, but they're also facing a major hit to the non-oil economy, which is unlike other shocks. Uh, increasingly, as these countries lock down as well, they're not only facing a hit to business travel and the like, but also uh, locally. Um, and this, this, I think, calls into question the degree of economic diversification um, and what that really means. Plus, you add to the fact that the assets invested in public markets have no doubt taken a hit. So I think you have a number of shocks and an environment where uh, it's cheaper for Gulf countries to finance themselves, unless they're Bahrain or Oman, than many emerging markets. Uh, but the debt markets that have been open to them in the last few years will probably be more costly. So I think this means more of that sovereign wealth being delivered at home, either through uh, development projects and probably even less willingness to uh, invest in the region and a further degree of less willingness to maybe invest opportunistically internationally, uh, which of course was the trend we saw in, uh, in 2008 and nine. Great. Thank you. Um, let me turn now to a couple of questions we've been getting uh, from the, uh, the question, uh, a couple of additional questions we've been getting from the question function uh, here on uh, Zoom. Uh, the first, a, a question on the geopolitics, and then I want to ask a question uh, on the um, uh, international response. So on the, the geopolitics, a question from Michelle uh, Salvini um, at the uh, Bank of Italy, uh, who is asking 
about whether China's uh, potential involvement in rescuing frontier, frontier emerging economies uh, gives it an opportunity to boost uh, renminbi uh, internationalization, something that China's talked about for quite some time, obviously, and made uh, comparatively limited progress on actually uh, implementing, and then related, sort, sort of related conceptually, on, although on a different angle of the geopolitics, these kind of high-profile relief efforts we've seen by both China and now Russia, you know, flying cargoes of military supplies and uh, and um, uh, uh, doctors uh, into Europe, uh, and sort of how is the, those sort of high-visibility responses uh, affecting uh, the geopolitics? So that's one set of questions. I'm going to come um, uh, to both of you on that in a minute. And then the second set of questions uh, to put on the table now uh, from uh, several individuals, including uh, Tom Cunningham uh, at uh, Equinor US and from George Lopez at the University of Notre Dame, about what more should the G7 and G20 uh, be doing here, you know, in terms of coordinating uh, in international response. So let me turn first to the geopolitical uh, questions. And maybe, Alina, let me start with you. Um, you know, how do you see both uh, China uh, potential opportunities for the internationalization of the RMB here and then also kind of the geopolitical implications of these high visibility uh, actions by the Russians and Chinese? Well, I think in terms of internationalization of any currency, we have hope for euro. That might be what we might want to talk about. Um, I'm very skeptical about um, Chinese renminbi at the moment. I think originally the project started as um, sort of um, a way to sell to higher authorities in China the idea of opening up the capital account. So it was a sort of a political twist on a very simple technocratic idea of let's open up capital account. And that's what's happened maybe sort of five, seven, many years ago. Well, since then, the, this project has been sort of a little bit in underwater and uh, I think without proper opening up of the capital account and, and the monetary policy, conventional monetary policy, it's very hard for them to do proper internalization of the renminbi. For Europe, however, that's a different story. We can touch upon that later. In terms well, of the- I'd like to uh, welcome, because we are, we are running low on time and we did also get a question about uh, European uh, responses and, and how do you assess uh, you know, are we going to see issue, you know, things like a common uh, European debt instrument or anything like that? How would you evaluate the European response? I think for Europe, it's a critical moment. And you're saying already in the press in Italy and Spain is that do we walk away from this project? And I think it's extremely important. And a lot of European authorities haven't fully woken up to the reality that you could have a second European crisis like we had in 2011. Um, so in terms of the response, I think the Euro bond would be fantastic if possible, but in the short run you have existing institutions, for example, the, an ESM credit line available to all, um, that could help. So the show of solidarity with an existing institutional framework is critical. And then over time, I am hopeful, I'm still Eurobond Euro, Euro hopeful, uh, but it might just take too much time uh, to be meaningful at the moment. Rachel, let me turn to you um, uh, both on the uh, briefly on the geopolitics question, and also what more would you like to see out of the G7 and G20? Sure. On the on the geopolitics question, particularly around China, I think an important limitation on greater internationalization is actually 
the degree of Chinese discomfort about the amount of renminbi that circulate internationally. That's sort of the flip side of Alina's point on the capital account, but we've seen one of the challenges even in countries like Russia that have adopted major sort of renminbi stockpiles in their foreign currency reserves that there's the liquidity issues and the like. So I think there is a different view even within China about whether and what type of internationalization is advisable. Um, plus also concerns about credit risk that materialize. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a complicated story. That being said, I do think the optics of some of the delivery, especially in Europe, they serve to amplify those divides within Europe that Alina has been talking about. Uh, the jury at, on how effective Chinese and Russian help was is still is still with us, but we know that China and Russia have had an, at, at their hearts, uh, in, in the heart of some of their policies, a desire to exacerbate some of those, those divides. Um, and that's something, something to watch. Um, one explanation I've heard that makes some sense on the Russian side was not only wanting to get some, some credit and kudos, but also whether it might be useful to get some expertise in learning how to treat this illness. Um, but that's, that's to be seen. On what else could we see the G7 and G20? Uh, I know uh, in that context. I think more uh, commitment and pressure around uh, bolstering some of the international, the global financial institutions and push to provide more uh, liquidity, you know, more financing in that way. Uh, additional uh, support and funding to global health organizations. Um, and particularly some, uh, I think I'd like to see a bit more action behind some of the, both the fiscal coordinations and the pressure to try to avoid trade protectionism and, and, and competition. Um, we are starting to see some coordination or some at a lag uh, co uh, coordination, particularly from central banks. But I think that we could see more. And one of the key places we could see more is trying to figure out how to utilize institutions that already exist to provide, you know, to provide backstop so that we don't see uh, spiraling uh, recessions uh, across more of the world than we need to. Right, terrific. I realize we are um, getting quite close to the end of our uh, of our hour. I'm going to throw out two final questions uh, and ask both of you um, to incorporate uh, your responses into any uh, any closing uh, remarks. The first, actually, picking up uh, where you are, uh, where you, Rachel, just left off. A uh, question from Jim Timby uh, at the Hoover Institution. Um, uh, you talked about G7 and G20. Uh, what more would uh, both panelists uh, like to see out of the IMF uh, and the World Bank? Um, and then uh, final, um, uh, final question uh, from, uh, which I think is an interesting one, uh, coming in from Elizabeth Gillis uh, with the U.S. Coast Guard, you know, talking about how at least in the U.S. we seem to be seeing divergent responses between federal and state authorities. Uh, and hopefully that will... Uh, narrow. I think all of us hope that will narrow over the next uh, couple of weeks. But if we continue to see divergent responses uh, here in the U.S., what is that going to mean uh, for U.S. Uh, leadership and U.S. Uh, economics going forward? So those two questions uh, and any closing remarks. Rachel, maybe I will start with you, uh, be brief, and then um, uh, Alina, I will come to you for final uh, work. 
Uh, let me take the second question on federal uh, local level response. Um, I think there are a couple of concerns, and, and the U.S. is not the only country that is seeing divergent policy responses at a national and local level. Brazil is a country that stands out uh, for that dynamic. Um, uh, the biggest issue I see is that the sort of competition that we've been talking about across countries for supplies uh, in many ways uh, is playing out within the, within the United States so that there are things that the federal government could do to coordinate that are harder for states to do. Some of that is starting to change, uh, but I think the messaging and coordination role is, is quite uh, important. Um, and I think it, the mixed messages probably make it even harder for the U.S. to coordinate at a global level. So then, and that's, as I say, something important to watch. On the point more generally of other things sort of the, the U.S. and others can do, we haven't talked much about it, but uh, addressing the oil market oversupply is one of those things that maybe it's not a G7 or G20 issue, but individual members of those groups can do things to avoid further sort of spirals downward. Um, let me stop. Let me stop there. And uh... thank you very much, uh, Rachel. Let me turn it over to you, um, Alina, for uh, maybe comment. Final comment on uh, the IMF and multilateral uh, response, and then any uh, other final comments, particularly on oil, which we've discussed uh, a little bit less than I might have expected uh, expected here, but very important, uh, both to global economics and to a number of governments. I do think that we need to talk about oil. We need to talk about oil at G7 and G20. We, it's not the right time to have a market share fight in the middle of the global crisis in activity. And there is, they have to find a way to pull different actors into the same room, uh, do the complicated dance of sending telegrams to each other ahead of time, um, and we need to start talking about oil. Um, I think we will see that neither Saudi nor Russia will be able to find buyers for their increased supply uh, come April, May, and I think that will, the money will incentivize them to come back together to the negotiation table. And in terms of the IMF, I would just say, uh, one thing, we need to boost the available resources for the funds for the speed reaction facilities. That is key for the emerging markets. Great. Well, thank you very, very much, uh, particularly to Rachel and Alina. This has been incredibly insightful. You have been uh, very generous with us and with all of our uh, attendees with your time. Uh, very much appreciate it. Um, to all of you participating uh, on uh, your computers and on the phone, uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for the questions. I know we unfortunately weren't able to get uh, to all of the questions on this seminar, although I hope we uh, addressed uh, most of them. As Liz said at the beginning, we will be posting uh, this um, workshop on CNAS's website. So if you want to share this with colleagues, you will be able uh, to do so uh, and very much appreciate uh, everyone's uh, time. And, and please stay healthy uh, and please stay safe. Take care. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.